It's time to accelerate. Hey, friends, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 728 of Accelerate. That is episode 728 of Accelerate, the sales podcast of record. I have another excellent episode lined up for you today. Joining me as my guests are Bill Ekstrom and Sarah Worth. Bill's founder and CEO of the EC Cell Institute. That's EC Cell Institute. Sarah is their vice president of client services. And together, they are the co-authors of a new book titled The Coaching Effect, What Great Leaders Do to Increase Sales, Enhance Performance, and Sustain Growth. And as you might expect, today we're going to talk about coaching. Uh, real coaching, not sort of that superficial deal coaching that most people try to pass off as coaching, but real performance coaching, real growth coaching. So among the topics we're going to cover today include why good coaching has the strongest correlation with growing sales, why managers need to invest their own time in learning how to coach, how the lack of good coaching contributes to the skyrocketing rate of attrition and turnover that we see in sales and across all industries, how to develop stronger relationships between the manager and the sales rep, why leading and managing are different skill sets, and finally, how a good coach can increase their team's discretionary effort. And this is a term that that Bill and Sarah coined in the book, discretionary effort, which is defined as the willingness to work harder and to do more. And it's an interesting measure to think about. So just as a reminder, before we get to Bill and Sarah, today's episode is brought to you by The Sales House, the growth training platform for B2B sellers. In The Sales House, we help you learn how to grow as a person and as a professional through continuous active learning. And you'll acquire the lifetime skills and behaviors that you're not going to learn in sales training, that you need in order to succeed. These are the essential skills that help you make the decisive difference in your ability to win new deals. So come learn how to sell with more confidence, trust, and value. That's at thesaleshouse.com, thesaleshouse.com. We also have a special offer for members of Accelerate. If you enter the code SELLMORE10, they'll earn you a 10% discount on your first year's membership in the sales house. All right, let's jump into today's episode. Bill and Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andy. It's fun to be here. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Well, pleasure to have glad you. To be, glad to be with you. So, Bill, actually, this is a welcome back. Yes, it is. We were struggling to recall exactly when it was before, but uh, people should go check that episode. That was good as well. Um, well, thank you. So, we're going to talk about your new book, the Coaching Effect, What Great Leaders Do to Increase Sales, Enhance Performance, and Sustain Growth. So, why this book and why now? <laughs> I'm not sure I've ever been asked that question. Um, and Sarah may have even a different take on it than me. Uh, why this book, why now? Um, we, I think the most one of the more flattering things is when someone says, "Hey, have you guys written a book?" Or if I'm doing a speaking engagement, someone comes up and says, "Do you have a Do you have a book with more information in it?" And that's really, really flattering and also motivating. So we had accumulated so much research and so much experience in the realm of understanding how coaches impact the performance of teams specifically as it relates to sales. And so I decided, uh, we decided that we would 
attempt to write a book. Now, what's interesting how it came about, I'll let Sarah share that story with you because, um, and she even actually put that story in the book, but I'll let Sarah uh, explain why the book happened. I think specifically when it happened. Go ahead, Sarah. Yeah. So it was interesting. Uh, Bill and I typically do a career discussion once a year uh, and talk about my professional goals, what I'm hoping Mm -hmm. to accomplish, what I'm trying to work on. Uh, And one of the questions that he asked me at a, a career discussion one time was, what's my professional dream? To which I responded some kind of generic answer about growing the business. Uh, and I remember he looked at me and he said, okay, you know, I, I want to do that too, but I, I want you to think bigger. You know, what's really your dream? When you look back at your career, what would you have liked to have accomplished? Uh, and I said, I'd like to write a book, which is honestly something I, I don't even think I had consciously thought of until that point, but that's what immediately popped into my mind as mm-hmm. my professional dream. So uh, ultimately, we made that happen once we felt like we had the research and the stories and the overall direction to really convey a lot of good content. Okay. That's good. Well, I mean, you're, first of all, Sarah, you're entirely too young for that to be your dream. Hopefully your dream now is to write, write, a, write a bookshelf, not just a book. Because That's right. Yes. Yeah, a whole library. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and, and the, the cute little um, Paul Harvey-esque re- rest of the story is that she and I had done a lot of writing together. It's white papers and, and uh, maybe little ebook kind of mm-hmm. things. And unbeknownst to her, because of what she said in her career development uh, conversation, I took our work and submitted it. I, I had done a lot of due diligence knowing that I was going to submit our work to see if someone would be willing to write a book or to publish a book that mm-hmm. we had written. She didn't know I was doing any of that. And, um, one of the things I learned was, Hey, you're going to get turned down, but do, you know, don't stop. If you've got what you think is great material, you'll probably hopefully someday find a publisher that will work. And so after all the due diligence, I submitted our work to a publisher. Um, the first one I submitted to, and they accepted our work. So then I had to tell her. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Uh oh! Now they want it. Now you're in trouble, right? So um, exactly, that's right. exactly right. Well, let's let's dig into the topic of, of coaching because yeah, I think I mentioned before we start recording, it is certainly a hot topic these days, and and it's always sort of simmering somewhere. Sales coaching, um, and there's lots of talk about lack of sales coaching. So I want to dig into it from several different angles because um, one school of thought sort of is hey, there's less coaching that goes on now than there used to be. And this is sort of a general theme and almost like, you know, accepted wisdom you get. Do you believe that's the case? Yeah, I think certainly there's less of it in the, in the face-to-face interaction sense. I think nowadays, you know, we're, we're doing so much communication uh, via phone, via text. And so getting to go out with you know, your manager and go visit a client together and get feedback on how you did and, and receive that type of coaching that really has an impact. I don't think there is as much going on nowadays. And what's interesting, we've actually looked at this in our research. You would think the millennial generation would appreciate feedback and communication to come via text or Mm. via phone. 
uh, actually, most of them would rather have it face to face with their oh, manager, and that, absolutely. that kind of surprised us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so um, they're they're looking for that face to face coaching, which doesn't happen as much as it used to, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things is is certainly in certain segments you see much more so reliance on metrics to sort of manage activities rather than managing managing people, uh, which certainly is I think a problem. I've sat in conferences, you know, sales conferences where panelists will say, oh, we've stopped doing one-on-ones because they just don't work. And right. you know, my response to myself, because I have to restrain myself from saying it out loud, is, is that the problem is not the one-on-one. The problem is you, the manager. And, <laughs> yeah. and isn't that where a lot of this starts? And we're looking at you know, one of the huge problems in sales, obviously, is the, the rate of attrition is increasing pretty significantly. You know, the average tenure at almost every step along the, the ladder in sales I mean, I think the longest based on stats I just saw earlier this week is like 17 months or 18 months right. for a VP right. and account execs and SDRs and others are, are less. I mean, how I, I put the, the blame on managers for that. Yeah. Well, well and, and that's and I think, pro- oh, go ahead, sorry, go ahead <laughs> Nope, you go. With a lot of manager turnover, that's what we see time and time again is because they turn so quickly because people are promoted from a sales rep into a management position. Uh, in pretty short order, they don't have a lot of training of how to do that. And so they get into these jobs as coaches and they try to basically be super sales rep. Um, and they try to keep selling and focusing on the skills that got them there without any idea of how do I perform through somebody else? How do I coach somebody else to achieve their goals and then work with them as their leader as opposed to being the doer? And so we see that attrition really impacting a lot of a lack of skill development at the coaching level. Well, it's certainly has, for me, it has two key aspects. One is it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? You get this vicious cycle going as, as we, we know that people are only going to be there for a short period of time. So we underinvest in them. Because mm-hmm. what we're trying to do is get them to productivity more quickly. I mean, I think the whole whole idea of, of the timeframes that people put around onboarding these days, hugely unrealistic and unrealistic really to coach people through that in the timeframes they want. So we start getting, I said, this vicious cycle where we underinvest in our people and then they leave because they're not, they're not getting the growth opportunities they want. But you know, we're not going to invest them to give the, to develop them because we think they're just going to leave and go to our competitor. And why do we want to train somebody for our competitor? Right. You know, that, that's, it's such a short sighted view into how performance works, you know, which is funny. And we talked about this, I believe probably Andy on our last conversation, but at a high level, at a very baseline level, I, I guess this is how I'll word it. Everybody believes the performance of a team is a reflection of how that team is coached. And yet the resources that go into the, the leader or the manager, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call them, is still nominal to nothing. And they wonder why people turn over. Well, they, you know, I, if someone's interviewing with our company and they have a nomadic background, I will certainly dig into it, but that doesn't scare me. And, mm-hmm. and I think Sarah would probably say the same because my guess, they just haven't been in, if they're a great talent, they just haven't been invested in properly. Well, that's, how- that's the reason. And I don't think that's changed at all. There's still the number one reason people stay or leave has to do with the relationship yeah. with their boss. Right. 
when right. you get in your comment earlier about you heard you heard at a sales meeting that we quit doing one-on-ones because they don't work. Well, of course they don't work if you suck at meeting or coaching. Right. And, you know, that's the bottom line is, and we've seen it in our research. If people, and this is what's funny, and this is why people have to understand what coaching really is and does. People will say, well, we told our managers to go coach more and results went backwards. <laughs> that's like saying uh, to say a bad batter to, you know, we took our worst batter and had him come up to the plate more. And now we're losing more games. Well, of course you are. You're telling somebody who's bad at something to go do more of it. And then our research, we, we've been able to show that you actually coaches um, reduce the discretionary effort of the people on their teams. If they spend more time with them, if they're bad. Yeah. You know, the coach is the issue. Yeah, we'll get into that term discretionary uh, effort. I liked I liked that that it was in your book. Well, and, and so just back to this before we move on is is certainly some of the pressure I think for lack of coaching is as we alluded to earlier is this emphasis on metrics, right? We have much more transparency and so activities based on some of the tools we use. And and you see these expectations coming from investors or from C-level people, again, who don't really understand sales, but think, oh, well, now this is much easier to manage because I just have to look at the numbers and right. we're just going to manage our activities. And certainly we see this in a lot of the tech space and other places is that based on sort of low win rates is that we're just playing the odds at that point. We're not. We're not really selling anymore, right? We're just assuming if we do enough here, it's going to end up with you know a certain amount here, and for certain companies that's fine. But then in those instances, yeah, the managers, their incentive really, especially if they know their tenure is going to be somewhat short, and they feel this pressure, is yeah, let's just focus on the numbers. Mm-hmm. And so, and so it's like, mm-hmm. how do we how do we break that cycle? Because. Uh, I mean, I see two things that really come out of that. Is uh, I'm sure you see a lot more. Is that coaching these days, at least as I see it, so many companies practice is purely about opportunities, and it's really not about developing the individual. Mm-hmm. And and so I sort of purposely divide that into coaching and mentoring, just so people can get a different mindset about it. So, what are you guys seeing on that? You know, when we look at the components of coaching that really creates good outcomes, having order, having expectations, having clear goals, clear measurable benchmarks, that is a component. So, mm-hmm. you know, having that kind of metrics that you're talking about mm-hmm. is helpful so that you can define for people, here's what you should be doing and, and here's your accountability around it. Right. But the problem is it becomes, as you said, the only way that they coach. Uh, and we see really three kind of primary components. There's the order element that I just mentioned, but there's also relationship and there's complexity. So if you're going to be a great coach, you need to do all three. And so relationship essentially just means I build trust with you. I build communication with you. I know you. Mm-hmm. I understand you. You know, I know what makes you tick. I know when you're stressed. I know when you need help. And so that kind of, you know, coaching ability really makes a big difference. 
Another element of it is being able to put people into what we call complexity, being able to challenge people outside their comfort zone, give them developmental opportunities, get them into a space that they haven't experienced before so that they can grow and achieve more. And if you're not doing all three of those elements and only driving order and expectations, you're really missing out on a lot of chance to drive better performance. Yeah. And I think also, Andy, if I may, back to your question about, you know, it's data that um, is driving this behavior that you're describing. Mm -hmm. Um, And the challenges, and one of the things that we, and we describe this in the book, in the coaching effect, it's, I think, I don't think I know um, forever managers, leaders, and sales are looking at incomplete data that is completely and totally leading them astray. Right. They will tell you the performance of their teams are a reflection of how they, of how they're coached, but yet they can't tell you what their coaches are doing. They have no idea whether they're spending, how many days they're spending in the field, whether they're effective in the field, whether they're simply out in the field playing super sales rep, or whether they are actually helping somebody progress their skill sets. They have no idea whether they're working with salespeople on the front end of the Mm -hmm. calls or the back end of calls. They have no idea, zero idea, how strong the relationship between the manager and the salesperson is. And as Sarah mentioned, that's the... That's a baseline of performance. That's a baseline of coaching effectiveness is to understand uh, the depth of that relationship or to have a relationship. And so all the data has been around what salespeople do, and that needs to flip. The data needs to be what are the coaches doing? Mm -hmm. What are the leaders? What are the managers doing? Right. Because that drives what the salespeople do. So it needs to flip. So to, to answer your question, I think we need to drive more data that shows what coaches are doing, not just what salespeople are doing. Yeah, I agree 100% on that. I, I was talking to a group of sales managers earlier this year, and, and one of the questions they wanted me to address was how should managers spend their time? You know, how should mm-hmm. they allocate their time? And, and so I, for a while I've had this, this acronym I use to sort of spell it out for people. Be interested in your your take on it. I, the acronym is POPE, P-O-P-E. And the first P is for process. And I said, you know, sales managers spend roughly 40% of their time on building, process for me is building capabilities and capacity within the organization. So that could be hiring, it could be interviewing, it could be, you know, managing, managing defining your process, managing your actual selling process. Uh, the O is for opportunity, spend a 30, 30%. Uh, Opportunity coaching, you know, working on closing deals and helping your, your people sell. Second P is 20% on the people. This is where you're doing your personal development, personal growth, upskilling, and so on. And then 10% they need to devote to educating themselves. And yeah, I've used that framework. I got it from a manager a long, long time ago. Uh, it always worked for me. But we don't, <laughs> what I see is really interesting is that, you know, they're feeling so pressured by these the data and the activities side of thing that they're not making any of the investments in the people or themselves even. And thinking, oh, I don't have time. That's like, well, you've really got nothing but time. <laughs> well, and, and it's so important, to, like the most important thing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, you know, yeah, they, they spend a ton of time, you know, looking at spreadsheets on their computer, mm-hmm. a ton of time doing territory plans. 
But if you don't coach your salesperson at point of sale on their skills to be able to ask better questions, build a better relationship, better assess needs, you know, be able to, to challenge customers' assumptions. If you don't coach that, you can look at all the spreadsheets in the world, but you're still not going to sell more. So it's a, it's a time allocation question. And to me, and based on our data, coaching your salespeople is the absolute best use of your time for helping right. you hit your goal. Yeah. Which is, which is kind of funny. So we get asked the question, and and um, I don't know if we have this quantified yet, Sarah. Maybe we do somewhere. But my understanding is, when you ask leaders, what's the number one reason why you're not behaving more like a coach or spending your time coaching? Um, they will respond, "Well, I don't have time," <laughs> and that's a fascinating response because when we look at our research, it's those behaviors and activities that have the strongest correlation to growing sales. That would that would be similar to or likened to a salesperson having just learned a great new sales methodology with all kinds of data that shows if you follow this methodology, you will sell more stuff. And then the salesperson comes forward and says, hey, you know what? This whole sales methodology thing, I just don't have time to implement it. Not my deal. Mm -hmm. I just, I'm too busy to sell better. Well, which is is sort of... How would that fly? Well, (laughs) but that's that's like, that's like a great phrase, right? I'm too busy to sell better. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think I think that's our, that speaks volumes, right? That that is, I, I love it. That's that's really uh, a great way of expressing it because you know you, you go into sales managers, and one of the things that that I work with companies on is we'll put together a um, a book club for the sales team and a curated list based on their particular needs, and you know we space it out over twelve months, read ten books facilitated book discussions and so on. But for the companies that say no to that, their reaction is always saying, well, we don't have time. And my sellers don't have time. And I said, but you understand that for decades, you know, the studies have all shown salespeople spend a third of their time at most actually selling. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. And I think this is one of the things mm-hmm. that's the pressure of you know, this, the data and the transparency we have is is again, if your management structure is such that they think that sales is purely about the numbers, then they won't invest the time. And so, I, I was just interested in your experience when you deal with companies that are clients of yours. Have you had one that you've had to serve? How have you convinced them to break that that mold or break that practice to understand that? Yeah, you've you've got time to do this. Not only do you have time, you must spend the time coaching and so on. I I feel like for a lot of people, it comes down to being able to put some proof in front of them. One of the things I'll try to challenge them on is, you know, okay, so what are you spending your time on? And inevitably, they say things like internal meetings Mm -hmm. or putting together plans or, you know, looking at data. Um, And I say, okay, great. You know, what? So what's your ROI of that? Like, what can you show me that if you do more of those things, you, your team sells more and they just, they look at you like you're crazy. Cause you know, they're like, well, I have no ROI for that. And I say, okay, great. I have an ROI that says if you spend more time coaching and do it better, you're actually going to increase your team's sales. So why don't you consider this? since it's actually a proven way to increase sales versus what you've just always done, which you're coming to us because you're saying, I'm not getting enough sales. Mm -hmm. So you probably need to do something different. 
Um, and that and that usually helps. The data perspective certainly helps them because they they respond to being able to measure coaching and its impact for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, interesting comment because it, it called to mind that I don't know if you guys follow uh, modern sales pros. It's a big listserv with primarily SaaS companies and so on. But but mm-hmm. there's a thread discussion thread about a month or more ago about sales coaching and and. Several themes that came out of it as I started reading some of the responses about this was that, you know, that it's not clear, and it, as the primary order of business, it's not clear to, to many new sales managers that, that they're only going to succeed if their people succeed. Thus, mm-hmm. <laughs> thus, coaching should be top of the list. And it's just, it's like it's not there. And then, <laughs> and so I was like, well, okay, how are we failing these people? And is that because we're not modeling that behavior? Probably. was my first impression is, you know, their managers aren't modeling that behavior to them. And, and then the second part was that there's all these excuses made. Don't have time, don't have the tools, don't have the training. And I just think back to my own experience, and not like I'm, you know, the paragon, but, yeah, I, I understood that when I got promoted that, I was going to succeed if my people succeeded. I didn't have the tools and the training, but I, I did the best I could until I started getting some and started learning and got some experience. But that, that initial impetus to do it just doesn't seem to be present. Well, it, it, you're right. It's not. And that's failure on a lot of levels, Andy. Um, when people get promoted, typically it's from a sales role and they're moving up, right? Mm-hmm. So when they get promoted, they're saying, okay, here's your team. Here's your region. Here's your number. Go, go get it, tiger. You know, come on, baby, you can do it. Um, but what's interesting, and, and I posed this question to executives before and, and the look on their face is inevitably there's some, cause they can't answer. And that's this, if you're number one sales leader, or it doesn't matter any of your sales, leader, mm-hmm. a regional manager, coach, whatever you want to call them, um, came to you and said, Hey, I want to grow my team. I want to hit a bigger number. And I know my team, how they perform and what they produce is really a reflection of me and how I coach. So what do I as a coach need to do more of or less of to help my team hit a bigger number? And not a single vice president would know how to answer that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Be, be, because again, now we're getting back to the, the, da- the data component. Um, nobody, everybody up to this point always has viewed, I think coaching and we just had this conversation this week with a prospect. They viewed coaching as a soft skill. Yeah. Um, the, what distinguishes a soft skill from hard skills measurement. And now, and we have shown through our research, what they need to do is when somebody gets promoted is measure whether or not they're doing the right things with the right frequency and the right quality that will drive the most performance from the team. But organizations aren't, let me rephrase that, fewer organizations are really willing to do that, Andy. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, leaders are getting, managers are getting into a role with no idea how their behaviors and activities are impacting their team. Yeah, I mean, I I, oftentimes when I talk, I make the point that you know everybody talks about how everything has changed in sales yada 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 and i say well actually it's really just the opposite the problem is that we're managing sales just the way we did 100 years ago i mean fundamentally the same right 
And and so one example I give is we talk about you know how we measure is quota. So I think quotas completely useless these days. Um, you know, we have a we have so few reps that meet it. B if you have Goodhart's law, if you're familiar with Goodhart's law, Charles Goodhart, who was a British economist, who put this forward and it's been proven out, you know, empirically, is that when a measure becomes a target, it loses all value as a measure because people optimize their processes to achieve the target. Um, and so if we have fewer than 50% of reps hitting quota, why do, we, why do we still bother with it? You know, there's other measures like p- true productivity, you know, dollars of revenue generated per hour of, of sales time. And that's it called to mind that because that's a question I ask CEOs and sales leaders when I first engage with them. So you're a rep. Let's take, yeah, Jennifer here. So how many dollars of revenue does she generate per hour of actual selling time? No way. <laughs> no one knows. But if you understand mm-hmm. the true productive capacity of your sales team, and if you really understand the levers you can push to improve actual productivity and performance, to me that's performance is productivity, then you'd want to know that. But as to your point, is, is, you know, we're still managing sales like it's 100 years ago. Um, yeah. It's just, it's, we have the ability to collect this data <laughs> very easily through the tools and so on, and yet we're not. And so I think managers are as wedded to the past, maybe even more so than their their sellers. Oh, they 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 are, and and I'd, I'd like Sarah to comment on this too. But it's hard to be a leader in, in you know in a leadership role, call them a coach, call them a manager, and see empirically quantitatively that you stink yeah. in that role. But you want to know, you, you should, know. we should want to know, right? We should, right. But, but I don't know, Sarah, <laughs> what would you say? What, what number, uh, what percentage? Well, I think in the book, we, we say 40% of managers are, are so miscast in the role that they'll mm-hmm. never, you know, be effective. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, a really decent sized percentage of managers and it's, it's tough because the essence of what they need to do to be effective is exactly what they don't want to do. A lot of them want to be salespeople, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of them want to be out with customers. A lot of them want to be closing deals, which is great. We need to give really great salespeople a pathway to keep doing that and to be able to earn more money and have, you know, a better title if that's what they want and that's what's meaningful to them so that they can grow in their organization Mm -hmm. in that kind of vertical way without having to move into management. I I talked to a lot of managers who moved into management just because it was the next career step, sure, not because they necessarily wanted to coach and lead others. Uh, And so when we don't give them that pathway, they take it and then they end up in a role where they're ill-suited. All right. So that raises a question that, yeah, we certainly in certain certain industries, you know, subscription-based companies that are using, relying heavily on the inside sales model. We've seen highly specialized sales roles evolve. Do we need to do the same with sales managers so that there's, yeah, a sales coach, a dedicated sales coach? Yeah. It was funny, Andy, to answer that question, yes. (laughs) <laughs> the way the way it's being done today with a lot of organizations to you know people that just simply coach to the numbers um we have shown um into our data that that really can decrease discretionary effort mm-hmm. if that's the case get rid of the managers 
put a sales help desk in, you know, uh, a coaching help desk or managerial help desk in the office and eliminate all your managers, put them back into sales. They'd probably see much bigger gains if they did that. And, and while you may sense some sarcasm in there, I'm primarily serious. No, no, I, I'm, I'm writing that one down. <laughs> I like that sales sales help desk. Yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of merit in considering that that idea is that uh, to Sarah's point, yeah, you know, people think there's this logical career progression. I know personally, uh, people that are peers of mine who, uh, yeah, took the first few steps in management and then said, "No, nah, I'm going back." Right? I want to go be a salesperson. Right. But they didn't feel like they had a choice at the time because Mm -hmm. whether it was a particular company or circumstance or so on, it was just said almost like an academic, you know, publish or perish. It's like, yeah, take the next step or, you know, go somewhere else. And that always seemed crazy to me. But, yeah, more than a handful of of peers, good friends of mine that made that that move back, which I – they made more money. They were <laughs> like one guy ended up writing his first book. <laughs> to Sarah's point, <laughs> he was cr- he was crushing his numbers, and he had a lot of time during the day, and you know, would go to the coffee shop, go to Starbucks, and wrote his first book. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's somebody yeah, who's doing could, what they love and doing what they're good at. Yeah, yeah. If you could set the ego aside, you know, if if organizations and using our number right, if if you have let's just round numbers, let's say 100 managers, and 40 of them are miscast. That means 40 of them are way, way, way better off as salespeople. If you said to that organization, hey, we're going to add 40 A-talent salespeople Mm -hmm. into your team, would you take them? And of course, they'd say, well, heck yes. You know, they know your products, they've proven your industry, and they're ready to go. They'd jump on it. Oh, absolutely. the well, same organizations are petrified that they got to replace you know, forty managers, but hey. Well, to your point earlier, is you could do without most of those, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah, yeah. They're not helping. They're yeah. not helping, and, they're and you'd not... be better off with a lower number of managers who could actually coach people. Yeah, and I think this it's an interesting point because I think this thing that gets forgotten a lot of times is that people get promoted into managers. So let's take your forty people that are, you know, not destined to be uh, good good sales managers, but they were they were promoted because they were. Probably, I would assume, because they're really excellent salespeople. Yet, as soon as, as soon as as soon as they get tagged as being an underperformer as a manager, there's suddenly people look at them like, oh, they were an underperforming salesperson too, which is just nuts. Because I've seen companies where there's underperforming salespeople, they didn't want to let them go back to be sellers because they thought, yeah, they just they don't know how to perform. And it's like, well, no, they were good salespeople. I don't know if you've ever encountered right. that, but it's uh, people sort of get tagged with that. Uh, that label of being underperformers. Yeah. And they're different skill sets. I mean, they, they just are. Some people possess them both. Some people can be a good salesperson and transition into being a good sales leader, Uh, but they're different skill sets. And so there's plenty of people that should stay as a salesperson because that's where they're well suited. There's probably also people who would make great sales managers may not get the chance because maybe they weren't a great salesperson, but actually would be better in a leadership role uh, than that great salesperson who doesn't mm-hmm. possess that natural leadership talent. So, and let's let's dig down that just briefly because for people listening who are individual contributors and are thinking, yeah, I think maybe my next step would be to be a manager. Is 
you know, based on what you're saying, and, and I agree with this, is that, yeah, you really need to look closely at your motivations. You know, if your motivations are about, are about serving other people to help them achieve what they want to achieve in their lives, which is very similar to what your motivation should be for selling to your customers. But if you have that motivation, then yeah, perhaps that's right. But if you think it's about money, prestige, uh, you know, getting the, the parking spot closer to the door or whatever, right. then right. yeah, it's not the right move. No, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, one of the things we've, um, we used to, I used to tell audiences this quite a bit and it was always interesting how people reacted. But if you changed the title, from the first, what we call sales management one, mm-hmm. you know, SM one. Um, if you change the title to coach, sales coach, would you have fewer people that would want that role? Yeah, probably. That's my initial reaction. Is yes, you would. Yeah, I- exactly. And 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 I believe that would happen. So they 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 have to. Coaches, managers, leaders need to understand and help people understand their strengths instead of just saying, because most salespeople, if you ask them, they will say, unless they've been around a while in our lives, well, my next move's into management. And I think Sarah does a good job of helping leaders understand how to probe and dig and pry into that response because if they're challenged on it, you know, a lot of times they will come to realize that, wow, I, don't think I do want that after all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, think, what's I your comment on that? Yeah, it's really the, the thing that I always recommend to leaders, if they have somebody on their team who says, I want to move into management. Andy, to your point, the first thing I encourage them to ask is, okay, so why do you want to be a manager? Tell me about, you know, why, why does that interest you? Uh, and people are usually pretty honest. They'll, they'll say to you, it's the next logical step or, I want a challenge or, you know, I'd, I'd like to have more of a, a voice in this company or I want, you know, it's just the, the next logical thing. Mm. Um, it, when I hear that type of response, that's a pretty good clue that I've got somebody who's just saying, I want to grow. They're not saying I want to be a manager. Right. Um, that's a great and, distinction. And so great that, distinction. Yeah. Yeah. And help them find a growth path. But people who really want to be a manager, they'll say to you, well, you know, I worked with a new salesperson on the team and I really liked it. I really liked teaching them how to do that job. And so I'd like to do more of that. Okay. Well, then you've probably got somebody who really is interested in being a coach to other people. Right. Well, interesting too, I think, uh, I'm sure you both of you have come across this is, is and I've seen this <laughs> too many times. It's sort of funny is sellers don't become managers because they don't want to be sellers anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, you know, they just they sort of looked as like, okay, this was sort of my two two or three year period of indentured servitude, but yeah, I just really want to be a manager, so help me out of here. And as a, if you're a senior sales leader looking at yeah, you know, frontline manager, I always caution people: so you have to do just as you said, Sarah. Is you really have to dig deep and really understand the motivations because a lot of times people. Have, Maybe they got lucky for a year, you know, hit a big number, and they just they just really want out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, right. absolutely. And then they become bad sales managers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you're looking for people who really want to coach. You're looking for people who, when you ask them why, they talk about how they want to teach others, help others succeed. You know, be well, be able to develop other people. When you hear that as a response as to why they want to be a manager, then you've got somebody who really wants to be an effective coach. 
Okay. Yeah, and I think also watching. I mean, if who, who is it on your team when you hire somebody new that volunteers? Who is it on your team that tends to go help others get deals done? Exactly. Not just their own stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Who's that person that everybody else on your team turns to right. um, for advice and guidance and help because they know that that person will always help out. Yeah, my my first branch manager when I was working for Burroughs back in the day, uh, when I asked him about a salesperson that I thought had management potential, I was in my first management job, and I asked him, well, so how do you know when someone's ready to be promoted and to a sales manager? And he said, well, when they're already doing the job. And just to your point, mm-hmm. Sarah, you know, they're helping people. They're already doing this stuff voluntarily. They're seen as a leader figure, a senior figure. Uh, and they'll devote some of their own time to helping others. Then, yeah, those are, those are the prime candidates. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so one last question is, and I love this term you talk about in your book, discretionary effort. You've used it several times, Bill. Um, so you say the outcome of coaching is to create discretionary effort, which is the additional output produced by a team because of the coach. So... Is by that do you mean motivation, or you know how do you how do you generate this discretionary effort? Go ahead, Sarah. In terms of discretionary effort, you're really looking for what we talked about at the top of the call: somebody who is building good relationships of trust with people. You have to first establish that. I'm willing to get to know you. I care about you. I want mm-hmm. you to be successful as a person. I have to have a great relationship with you if I'm going to be able to, to challenge you to perform at a higher level. Um, then I have to have order. I have to have clear expectations. I have to have processes that I teach you to follow and that I will follow as I coach you and lead you. And then I've got to get you into complexity. I've got to get you out of your comfort zone. I've got to give you challenges that cause you to grow. So it's not discretionary effort, that, that willingness to work harder, to do more, to mm-hmm. achieve more, is not a simple formula. You've really got to build that over time with your relationship, with the, with the order and accountability you establish, and with the complexity and the challenges you put in front of people. When you do all three of that, we see that leading to better discretionary effort, and then, of course, more sales. Okay, so one, one yeah. great answer. And Go ahead, Bill. No, you go. Well, I was going to ask one more question. So if you have a point on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, no, it, it's, um, well, I'm trying to think to, to build on what Sarah said. People will still perform. And we know this. If you ask a sales leader, will you, if, if you go on vacation and you don't show up to work tomorrow, do your salespeople stay home? And of course, they all jokingly say, yes, they do. But in reality, mm-hmm. everybody knows, no, people still work. Then the question is, well, if your job is to get more out of the team, how much harder do they work? How much smarter do they work? How much more do they produce because of you in the role? That's discretionary effort. Right. And so I just want to dig down a little bit on what, what Sarah had said, because this is, is something that to me is so critical, is you know, there is in certain sectors, if you spend time you know, LinkedIn, online, blogosphere, whatever, that is sort of attacking this notion of the importance of relationships and sales, primarily with the customer, right? That, uh, and it's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, I think these people are dead wrong <laughs> across the board. Um, but by their token, you know, they say, hey, it's just about respect and trust, which, you know, you can't have without a relationship. But anyway, right. uh, <laughs> but, but these same... 
the point I was going to make is, you know, these same qualities that, that we think that we want to have manifested in a frontline sales manager or a sales leader of any sort, in terms of relationships, the ability to connect, to ask great questions, to be of service, those are the same qualities you need to have to succeed in sales. I mean, people tend to look at us two different things, but they're very closely aligned. I mean, it, it's, yeah. this talks about being having integrity as a person between your words and action is... is yeah, they're they're very similar. You can't expect to be a successful manager if you're unable to demonstrate the same qualities in the relationships you build with your buyers. Yeah, There's I think if you're no question. If you're, yeah, if if you're a relationship driven salesperson, if you're a purpose driven salesperson, if it's about understanding and supporting your customers' needs, I think those are usually the salespeople that really succeed in management because mm-hmm. you're right. Those are the same skill sets. It's that same, that same desire to help people and help them achieve their goals that mm-hmm. will translate well into management. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think as, as the relationship to your point, Andy relates to discretionary effort. Uh, I think it's number one. I'll just flat out say I think it's silly to think that relationships and sales don't matter. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I agree. the second that goes out the window, it, all hell's going to break loose. It's how that relationship, I think, is um, instituted is impactful. But mm. keep in mind, just as it relates to discretionary effort, people will say, "Well, I grew my team, and I don't have, I don't really know my people." Well, for example, we know fear creates discretionary effort. Mm -hmm. But over time, longitudinally, fear, people will leave your team. You cannot, especially given today's environment where there's so many people, so many opportunities they have to go, so many places to go sell. Fears, it's not going to hold, it won't hold, it won't last. And then I think my last comment on how important relationships are to teams and performance, (laughs) ask the Navy SEALs. Oh yeah. <laughs> see, see, see how much importance they put on relationship and trust with each other, um, and how much they train to that. So, uh, I think it's uh, if, if people are saying that it's just because they suck at it. It's yeah. not because it, it doesn't work. Well, I think also we could go on forever. But I will start wrapping up. Is is <laughs> is I think I think people operate with a certain impunity because because to your point is there's so many opportunities out there today. That both for managers and for salespeople, the frontline sales managers and and sales salespeople sellers, yeah, opportunities are plentiful, and it's sort of like, yeah, I sort of joke from time to time that you know my message is going to be much stronger when there's a recession <laughs> because because then you actually will have to focus on on these fundamentals to succeed, and and you won't be able to skip from one opportunity to another just because, you know, the world is rapidly expanding. Yeah, you have to actually actually work. And maybe that's just, yeah, yeah I, I started my career in the midst of the hyperinflation of the late 70s. Yeah, you know, I got hammered by the recession in the late 80s. You know, I, I sort of, Mark, I can remember four good recessions in my career. And actually, they were all sort of times of peak performance, actually, in my career when I see things that happen. It's maybe just because when that happens, you really do have to focus on the fundamentals more than you typically do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why so many great businesses start during recession. Right? Yeah, people, exactly. people have to find uh, new ways to, to make money and, and work harder. Yeah. 
Yeah, All right. like ours. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. well, I think I think smart companies, to your point about your company, smart companies do double down on, on services like yours when, when times are lean. So uh, with that, we're going to wrap up. But tell us how we can connect with you. First of all, thank you both. Sarah and Bill for joining us and uh, tell us how we can connect with you and learn more about what you do. Um, thank you for that opportunity, by the way, Andy, that's very classy. Uh, so th- the name of our organization is called the Excel Institute, which is E-C-S-E-L-L. Um, Sarah is our vice president of client services. She and I have been working together quite a while in this industry. She heads up service. She heads up research within the organization. Um, and our book that we just, that just came out in April, it made the Amazon bestseller list is called the coaching effect. And thank you for adding that at the beginning of this. Well, it's a good uh, book. I recommend it, people read it. I well, mean, it's, thank you. yeah, I mean, it's, it's not very often that there are sales books that come out with, uh, substance. So it's a good book. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> thank well, it's you. based on research and that's, that's what guides us and directs us. So. Excellent. Okay. Well, guys, thank you very much. And uh, look forward to doing this again before too long. Hopefully, it won't be two years. Uh, Andy, (laughs) thanks so much. And best of luck to you, too. All right. Okay, friends, that was Accelerate for the week. First of all, as always, I want to thank you for joining me. I also want to thank my guests, Bill Ekstrom and Sarah Worth. Join me again next week as my guest will be Gaetano DiNardi, Gaetano's Director of Demand Generation at Nextiva. He's uh, an aspiring hip-hop artist. Perhaps you've seen some of his work online. He's also a great SEO expert. I always love talking with Gaetano. He brings the energy and strong opinions, and we're, we're really going to get into it next week. So be sure to join us then. And before you go, don't forget to check out The Sales House, the growth training platform for B2B sellers just like you. Visit thesaleshouse.com. We'll see you there. So that's it for this week. Thanks again for joining me. And until next week, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.